Welcome to This Is What Democracy Sounds Like. I'm Kevin Prang. This program is a presentation of Metropolitan Congregations United. MCU is a community organization that brings together religious congregations, community groups, and individuals to work for a common purpose, to create a better life for all residents of the St. Louis region. We work at the intersection of race, economy, political power, gender, and the structures of oppression at work within us individually, within our organization, and within the community. We are working towards building people's control of the government, building community control of the economy, and expanding the public sphere, and creating structural racial equity. Today, our guests are Emmeline Giles, Beth Gutzler, and Sister Dolores Sanchez, environmental justice organizers for Metropolitan Congregations United. Welcome, and thank you for being here today. So let's just get started with the basics. I, I think I do this every time, but I think it's important because we we talk a lot about uh, environmentalism in, in the news. We hear about those things, but for you, what is environmental justice? Well, I, I would say that uh, environmental justice is everybody having access uh, to um, safe uh, and sustainable sources of uh, healthy food, of good water, housing, neighborhoods, jobs. Environmental justice to me is um, making sure that we make all neighborhoods equal. And the idea that no area would be considered a disposable area. No group of people would be considered a disposable people. So that's how I really connect um, the environmental aspect to social justice. I think the last time, you know, we talked similarly, um, I mentioned, of course, the difference between environmentalism to that movement and, and how environmental justice is, uh, came out of that movement um, in response because low-income communities of color particularly are the most impacted by um, environmental racism issues. And uh, so the movement of environmental justice really calls forth uh, people of color, low-income communities to really be at the helm of this movement and fight for um, the rights of having, you know, like Sister Dolores mentioned, clean air. I mean, this is this at the most basic level, clean drinking water, right? Clean air and in, in where you play, where you work, um, clean soil, things like that. And so there's many different examples across the nation that um, clearly uh, show what that looks like, especially in urban communities. And this also impacts rural communities. So another phrase that I think is important and, and carries, I think, an important uh, definition to it is environmental racism. So how, how would you define that um, as either similar to, connected to, or even uh, different than just environmental justice? I guess I can start to that um, in the idea that when you start to look at things that are put into place um, that affect the environment, there starts to be a systematic um, way that injustices are done. So it connects in the idea that there are systematic problems that are racist connected. Um, and it, the reality is that that has to be viewed as an impact on those people and that these systems um, of the where we put um, our actual landfills, where we redo the pipes and where we actually put nuclear waste is related to what area people 
are seen as less of a value. I was thinking about what Beth said that, um, you know, some of these, some of these uh, environmental issues, you're not going to find them in the affluent communities. Um, those communities would, would, you know, be up in arms and have economic power, social power to um, make sure that they don't uh, happen in their neighborhoods. Um, and people in the poorer neighborhoods um, don't have that kind of voice. And that's where I think our work comes in. So that this environmental racism, uh, you know, we can you know, have impacted people impact the policies that, that uh, let this happen. And do you have any examples to give of, of what this looks like on a, on a practical level? Well, I know we've been talking about um, uh, air quality and particularly in the neighborhoods around the river. And um, you know, those neighborhoods are majorly uh, black and brown and uh, immigrant refugees. Uh, and certainly they're impacted by the poor air quality, combination of, of uh, major highways that are, were put there, um, uh, businesses or factories, uh, refineries along the river, um, just a lot of factors there um, that I would call environmental racism. Just this morning, um, we saw on the Post-Dispatch that there were two men arrested for illegally dumping hundreds of used tires and alleyways in the Ville neighborhood. And, and if you haven't heard of the Ville neighborhood, you can look it up. You can just see the disproportionate um, impact on particularly low-income communities of color that inhabit the Ville neighborhood. And also the history of the Ville is very rich um, and to learn about that and just to see like, this is a really good example that this issue is still, illegal dumping has been an issue for years and years and years, and it's wrapped up with vacancy and dis, uh, investment in communities of color in urban areas. So just wanted to lift that up. So talk about how, how this, how, um, activities like this affect the entire life of, of the neighborhoods of the people in them. And it's not just uh, a little bit of air pollution, I can't breathe today, but it, then that has a ripple effect on the rest of the quality of life um, for, for people that are affected. Just thinking of, um, you know, air and water, the, uh, in these impacted areas, the rates of asthma are really high. And so the kids, uh, the kids who are you know, suffering from asthma, they miss a lot of school. So, you know, you end up with kids that are, you know, falling behind in education um, or, uh, you know, I'm, I'm close to a family where they, they had to move because there, there was uh, the kids level of lead in their blood uh, was, was too high. And, you know, whether that comes from uh, the paint or the water pipes, um, you know, again, you know, that uh, lead leads to, um, you know, damages the brain. And so, you know, these are definite impacts that have, you know, big uh, impacts, wide impacts. So in your positions, um, and, and I should say, uh, Sister Dolores and Beth are, are joining MCU and have, have joined at, at the beginning of this year. Um, what, are, what are some of the goals or what, what are you looking to achieve in, in, in the coming months and, and years? 
So one of the things that we'd like to see is that there are more groups within congregations that are focused on environmental justice. So in the next two to three years specifically, just increasing awareness, doing this connecting between environmental justice and social justice, and setting a foundation for being able to work on policy change that might actually help impacted communities is a very large goal, but it's realistic in the type of work that MCU does. And uh, Beth has been on the ground for, uh, for a year, uh, more than a year, uh, and working with uh, uh, mostly Catholic parishes. And so I've joined her in that effort uh, to build up, uh, particularly in South City, where I had been working previously, and uh, um, also among the Hispanic community, uh, since I am a Latina and, and speak Spanish. Um, and they're part of the definitely part of the impacted uh, folks building up teams in in uh, within the Hispanic as well as the uh, English speaking um, churches and organizations in uh, South City is kind of my focus. So to follow up on that a bit, what what are some of the unique challenges and opportunities in working in the Spanish speaking community in St. Louis? Uh, it seems to me one of the interesting things about St. Louis is. Th- that compared to other cities, even in the Midwest, that population is relatively small compared to to other cities. You know, it has been relatively small, but it is has been. It's a long term presence in uh, St. Louis, and um, also a growing one. Um, uh, Latinos are you know have an average of four kids, uh, so certainly there's there's lots of uh, youth. Uh, young uh, median age in that community. Also, the, you know, having been here for so long, then the um, there are uh, groups that uh, like the Hispanic Chamber of Commerce, the um, Hispanic Leaders Group, um, other groups, the Latinx Arts Network. There are different groups that have been you know formed. It's been here long enough that those kinds of things, and even um, um, Spanish radio station. Uh, Spanish periodicals. So, you know, there's there's uh, a lot of roots in the community and growth out of that. One of the challenges with that is is the newer, um, well, and not so new immigrants. I mean, uh, some of the immigrants who have been here for 20 plus years and uh, raised their families here. And uh, so one of the challenges, of course, is that a number of folks are uh, don't have documentation to be here so they're, um, you know, it's natural that they're going to want to stay under the radar, and uh, may not. It, I think it's it being more of a um, a longer road for them to own the power that they do have, uh, and and uh, we're working on that. Also, somewhat uh, at least across the whole Gamaliel network of um, of groups that is different parts of the United States, working on immigration reform for that reason. Um, but back to environmental ju- justice, and it, you know, because of all the issues that immigrants deal with, environmental justice uh, probably will not, you know, I don't see it being a major issue that people uh, are aware of or that uh, is of great concern to them, unless they're impacted immediately by asthma and uh, lead and those kinds of things. Then, of course, it's more in their awareness. I've been in St. Louis for 10 years, so one of the... Um, benefits 
that that gives me is is knowing a lot of the Hispanic community in St. Louis and uh, including the church leaders and we're based on the church uh, uh, and and we're complementary as well because Beth works more in uh, lives in in uh, North County and I was working in South uh, City so uh, you know we kind of cover the territory between us. So you said it, it, it is some of some of the challenge is uh, this may not be a priority in those communities, especially with pressures uh, uh, of of not being accepted, of deportation, of of those types of things. Do you then talk about expanding uh, the definition of of the environment, and what would you include in that in that expanded definition? Well, there's there's two things, I guess, with that. Because immigrants come from uh, cultures that are much more connected with the land, there is, I think, a greater uh, a greater reverence for Earth, uh, and uh, in some cases, at least, people from certain parts of Mexico have have lost uh, land and trees, and uh, because of multinational corporations that have come in, and so um, they're aware you know, of, of those things. Uh, but certainly the, um, the impacts on their children, children are very important to, to the, in the Latino community. And so, you know, bringing that to the fore, you know, the uh, impacts on the environment, you know, even as we've been talking about, it, I think is gonna um, raise the level of concern, um, you know, emphasizing that as well. So it's both, you know, the, the natural um, you know, the nature itself, uh, creation, uh, and and again, by by and far, um, uh, by and large, the, uh, the Latina community is uh, tends to be Catholic or at least identifies Catholic, and um, and in the the whole area of the Pope's encyclical Laudato Si, uh, as we you know share that more. I think it will, um, you know, that will resonate with the community. Okay, can you can you describe that that for us a little bit more that that encyclical and and what it entails? Yeah, so the Laudato Si was actually written almost five years ago. It'll be six years um, during the season of creation in the Catholic faith uh, this coming up fall, and so um, this was written um, an encyclical. Just for those that don't know, is a papal document written by the Pope that helps to guide the church um, in the time that it, it is, um, bringing in references within the Bible and then connecting them to social justice issues or um, just Catholic social teaching is the term that's relatively used. And so in this particular document of Laudato Si, it talks about um, care for creation. It's called care for our common home, but it makes the point as you read along the importance of not only personal lifestyle changes, but also the impact on a larger global level and all of our responsibilities to take care of one another as a way to taking care of the earth as well. So it's very powerful and it's not a large, long read. Um, so it's uh, been inspirational in the Catholic parishes and the work that we're doing. Okay, good. So th that that's a way that this topic of environmental justice is is tied in with with your personal faith then is there anything that that you would add personally about the uh 
the tie-in between this movement and, and your faith? Well, one of the things that MCU talks about is just putting your faith into action. This document specifically allows for you to not only take scripture, but also your um, teaching and then know how to put that into action. So when I spoke to um, a gentleman named Ayad, who's part of the United Nations Environmental Program that works with um, congregations um, to move environmental work across the globe, he talked about similar documents that were being crafted by Hindu religions and Islamic religions to do that same sort of guidance around putting faith into action. That I think is a good transition to organizing. Uh, let, let's talk about why organizing is so important to uh, um, the, the work in environmental justice. It's, it seems like uh, finding that that group power is is vitally important when we're talking about these issues of, of the environment. So I guess I could start by just talking about the difference between um, service and organizing. So one of the analogies that we like to throw in a lot in reference to our training is the babies in a river analogy. So I don't know if that's been talked about on multiple PUNCU podcasts, but the idea that um, when someone sees a baby in the river, their first instinct is to go and rescue that baby. And so that's what you know we see as service type work in, in multiple different kinds of faith communities. But the difference between Um, doing service work and organizing is helping to figure out and go upstream and find out why the babies were even being put in the river in the first place. And so organizing allows for not only people to respond and take action, but to take organized action to create change. And usually that's in the form of policy type change. And I I know that environmentalism is, uh, environmental justice uh, is something that is, um, people can just be overwhelmed at the scope of it all. And uh, in organizing, you know, we're taught to, um, we we look at a a huge issue like like, um, environmental justice, and we cut it into, you know, to small steps, small bites, so that we can, you know, get a specific issue, uh, not a huge problem, but a specific issue and work toward the steps, you know, that lead to a change in policy. And uh, so it's a, it's a powerful and a long-term sort of solution so that, uh, you know, even your mistakes become learnings or even the, what, you know, seeming failures become chance to regroup and say, okay, you know, what do we need to do next? So it's a very powerful and positive approach um, that, you know, uh, there's many groups that work on environment, environmental justice. Uh, I uh, really uh, find this kind of organizing very powerful because of that approach. And, you know, I think it sustains us for the long haul, which it's going to be. In addition, I think what lies at the the foundation of organizing is essentially just it's relationship building. Um, so much of this work necessitates and relies on our strong relationships that we can build with one another. Um, and that also extends to residents and, and community members building relationships with amongst themselves. And part of that 
also demands trust and accountability and all of those things that um, uh, underlies a, a good relationship. Um, and without those, it's, it's essentially then it's transactional and it, it's not going to further tr- um, the work. And it's, it's, you know, having these deep relationships is, is transformational and radical in and of itself. Being able to have um, deep relationships that you can trust your neighbors um, amidst all of the oppression that we experience on the daily basis and these environmental racism issues that we experience. Um, and to find joy in those relationships while being able to fight for what's right um, and being able to see that there is more in common with one another than there is not, um, I think is what really fuels the work for me. And I've seen it um, impact other folks when we can um, work as a team and actually, you know, accomplish things together and like learn from our failures and, and joke about it. Uh, but at the end of the day, we're building energy amongst one another and realizing what we can do together. Um, so that's the most powerful for me in terms of why organizing um, as, as a, you know, an approach, as a strategy, as, you know, almost like a lifestyle, honestly, is just so impactful. Um, MCU is a part of a national network called Gamaliel. Uh, describe what that is and, and what are, are some of the things we learn and carry forward from that, that training. Wow, I've, I've uh, learned so much. Uh, Gamaliel is um, a network of affiliates across the United States that, um, and we work together uh, on common issues that impact our uh, different areas. And, um, you know, it's with the benefit that we can then move uh, change on the national level, uh, as well as support each other in our uh, individual states and, and uh, regions. And we learn about power. We learn about building relationships, which is so critical in today's polarized uh, political system and world. Uh, we learn about how to, uh, you know, the steps to approach um, impacting policy and making changes. We, we get to meet each other across the network since it's a national training and find mentors and support. Um, one area that I meet with others in is the um, uh, Civil Rights for Immigrants, uh, which has, uh, of course, a strong representation in California uh, and Chicago, but also in um, uh, in the Metro East here and in uh, Minnesota and Tennessee and Kentucky and uh, Wisconsin, uh, because there are Latinas across the United States and other types of immigrants. So it's a very beneficial uh, relationship to be part of Gamaliel. And if you were to go to national leadership training, I just want to highlight that it's nothing like you've ever been to before. <laughs> So I say that from a reference of being working in corporate restaurants and getting my MBA and coming from the state of mind of, you know, you think you're just going to get skills, but it's more than skills. It's an internal leadership development that's not, you know, discriminatory based upon your education, your background. It is an opportunity for impacted people to actually gain leadership skills to bring back to their communities and become organizers themselves. Yeah, I was just say that both Beth and Sister Dolores, I think hit the nail on the head with that. And um, I loved how Beth 
described it. It is definitely nothing like I had ever experienced. Um, and part of it is, is a kind of like a shock factor too, because um, it, I've never been to a leadership training that also, you know, agitates you about your own, you know, internal um, walls or, you know, experiences, what holds you back really essentially is that what it comes down to is, is what, what is your best self and what are all the behaviors um, that might show up in a public setting if you're in a room with an elected official or whatnot, um, that'll hold you back from that best self. And that best self is essentially um, you leaning in fully into the power, all the power that you have that probably if you're an impacted folk, you know, uh, was stripped away, um, you know, through the pressions that you've experienced growing up. Um, but that doesn't mean you don't have power. It means that the systems tell you that you don't. And so how do we reclaim that? And part of it is internal work and um, being able to go along the training with other community residents, um, especially when you go to these national trainings, there are people from all over uh, the nation. Um, you start to get to know one another. You do these one-on-ones, which are essentially having conversations with one another. And same thing that I mentioned earlier, you are more in common than you are different. And so being able to go through that journey with people um, from all walks of life, different experiences, different perspectives, but essentially realize that as humans, we all are struggling with similar issues and, and how can we challenge ourselves to be our best selves and then um, ground ourselves in our self-interest. What's, what is the fight, you know, um, where have our values been violated in the past and continue to be violated? And why are we so passionate about the work? So if it's environmental justice or if it's civil rights, um, or if it's breaking the school to prison pipeline, what in our self-interest grounds us around that? Because as Sister Dolores mentioned earlier, this is a long fight and we have to see it that way. It's not just, you know, one and done. Here's a protest there. Or when something happens, we all galvanize. This is a bigger system that we're trying to work against. And there are structural injustices that um, are, are, you know, overarching. And it's not just one person that's causing it. It's a whole, you know, ecosystem. So we have to create that ecosystem amongst ourselves to also create a movement against it um, to fight for what's right. Um, and, and to know that we do have the power, but it's the power of the collective. And how do we build that? We got to get trained up and we got to have the tools to be able to build a, a power amongst one another. Okay, great. It's not something that just happens. It, it takes work and the training then. Okay, so as we mentioned at the top, um, Sister Dolores and, and Beth are, are relatively new to uh, their positions at MCU. So uh, tell us a little bit about yourself. Where, what is your background? How did you, how did you come to participate with MCU? I'm, I'm a, a Mexican-American, as I had said uh, earlier, and um, in the process of working in, in, in the Catholic Church and uh, in parishes, I had an experience in Louisiana, in northern Louisiana, where um, in a parish where uh, the pastor had worked with another organization in community organizing. Um, and so we, we worked with it. I worked with the group uh, there um, and then moved over to another city in a different role and continued the work there uh, as it expanded. So uh, it was something I really, really um 
found meaningful and uh, and found that you know with the gifts that I have of relating to other people that you know was uh, um, a win-win for me as well. Um, and uh, the whole sense of uh, power and being at a, a big assembly in Boston during the training that I went to, I was jealous. And it was like, why am I jealous? Uh, this is a wonderful occasion. But it was because I, it, I didn't have that and have never had that where I've been. And uh, so it was really experience of, an experience of democracy at work, um, an experience of power. Um, for the good, for the common good. And uh, it, to me, it was like a bit of heaven. It was a bit of, you know, part of the reign of God. It was really like getting a glimpse of what, uh, you know, the kingdom of God would be like. So that is basically, you know, there's lots of other stories that go with my getting into MCU at this point in history. But uh, that's kind of the core of it, of what drew me into community organizing at this point. I feel like my story goes back a little bit farther um, than I thought, but I, my children were going to Catholic school um, in St. Anne, and I noticed that the school was different than not only what I experienced at the public school, but um, it was different um, in the, what they were bringing home. And I come to find um, that they were using virtue-based restorative discipline. So um, with having a psychology undergrad, I wanted to learn more about this and I quickly learned about restorative practices and the work that the International Institute for Restorative Practices was doing. Some people in the social justice world may know it as um, restorative justice. And so thinking and learning about how it has impacted my family positively and what the impact that it could be having on the entire community, um, we started the Social Action and Virtue Education Foundation through the help of the Catholic Campaign for Human Development. Um, but the, when I started to grow this nonprofit, the Catholic Campaign for Human Development, as we know as CCHD, led me to MCU because of this leadership training that we've been talking about today. And the idea that if it is wonderful to start at grassroots and with grassroots impacted people who have benefited from restorative practices, but it would take policy change from people that are in positions to make decisions to allow for everyone to benefit from something like a disciplinary change. And so that's what's so interesting to me and has led me to be working part-time here with MCU and the idea that this is a way to make larger impact than just yourself. Okay, great. Thank you very much for sharing those stories with us. So this is also a time of transition for you. Uh, do you want to share with us what, what you've got coming up and, and how you'll carry forward what, what you've learned here at MCU? It is a bittersweet transition, but um, you know, part of NLT training and just um, the way that Gamaliel um, trains around relational organizing is, um, you know, I mentioned before, leaning into your power. And part of that is uh, training around what is your path to power. And it looks differently for everyone. And, and at first it could be very blurry and it, and it, and it also is ever changing um, based on you know, how you grow and, and the experiences and skills you gain. And for me, I, I kind of, I didn't have the phrase path to power years ago, but I knew even back in you know, undergrad that I wanted to get a graduate degree I wanted to um, 
somehow <laughs> shake up policy processes because I had noticed even in my undergraduate studies and to this day um, that the people typically in decision-making uh, seats of power around policy were are typically not grounded in communities' needs or how policy actually um, shows up on the ground in, on, on a daily life basis. And so, um, and so much of the work that I studied in environmental justice in college, and I studied food, food justice and food systems, um, kept coming back to policy. It was just like every time, you know, well, why is this happening? This is an injustice. Let's figure out the root of it. And I kept coming back to policy. So I knew back then, okay, somehow I'm going to make my way and, um, have power enough that I can make decisions around how policy is um, not only implemented, but um, even uh, perhaps written and passed. So part of my path of power now is um, taking me to a graduate program that I uh, recently um, became a finalist for this fellowship program. And I will be moving next month to Washington, D.C., uh, to enroll in a master's of public policy management at Georgetown University. Um, so I'm really excited for the skills and the experiences I will gain through that uh, part of the fellowship. I will also be uh, offered a nine month internship placement. Um, and so I'm hoping to uh, work in a go the government sector. I have yet to have that experience. Um, and I'm hoping to take I know, and I'm hoping that I will take everything that I've learned this past year through Gamaliel and um, my experiences organizing and my relationships um, throughout the rest of my career. Uh, this has been in insanely informative. I wouldn't have been where I am today without Gamaliel and MCU, that is for sure. And all of the growth that I've gained um, internally this past year has is, is really um, helped me get, yeah, closer my path to my best self. I, I have to be honest. So I just have a lot of gratitude. Okay, great. Thank you for sharing that. And I think before we, we close things out, um, what, what's a call to action that you can leave with listeners? Do you have anything coming up that folks can, can be on the lookout for? And, and what, what, can, what can people do to become part of this community? There's actually a lot of opportunities that are um, working here at MCU for the community's growth in the next three months. Um, the first call to action is of course, think about building a team within your own congregation and connecting yourself to an organizer to help you with the tools to make that happen. This EJ team will also be hosting a mass meeting to allow us to introduce the new EJ task force, which is an ecumenical type group that works together on particular issues of environmental justice. And then following that, we hope to have a rally of some sort as well. Specifically this time, we hope to highlight air pollution. And there's gonna be lots of things on the website to help you connect with that particular event. But not to mention the fact that we wanna bring that national gamelial training here locally to St. Louis. So even though we have been, I, it feels weird to say, blessed by COVID to realize that we can have this on a virtual platform. We also know that it may not always be virtual and some people may also not feel comfortable doing things for an entire week long session. 
So MCU is starting what's called the Power Academy as a way to bring these skills to leaders or even the person listening yourself who would like to start a team. For those who might feel like um, they need to start with baby steps, um, just, you know, to continue to educate themselves. And um, one great way is to, um, to look up the report that WashU put out um, working with um, Arch City Defenders, the Sierra Club, uh, Dutchtown South Community Corporation. Um, I think it's Action STL. I uh, hope I didn't miss anybody. But they, they put out a great report on environmental racism in St. Louis. Uh, I think reading that will move people and, and uh, you know, to seek more information perhaps, but hopefully also to say, we need to do something about this. Uh, this is not right. Um, so I'd recommend that, that uh, report. I think it's called Environmental Racism in St. Louis, something like that. Okay, great. I want to thank all three of you for uh, participating in the program today. Uh, once again, our guests have been Emmeline Giles, Beth Gutzler, and Sister Dolores Sanchez, all environmental justice organizers for Metropolitan Congregations United. To learn more about MCU, go to the Metropolitan Congregations United website at mcustlewis.org, and also be sure to follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram for news and events. I'm Kevin Prang, and you've been listening to This Is What Democracy Sounds Like. Tune in again next time, and thank you for listening. Mm-hmm.